So turn to Matthew 28. That is the last chapter of Matthew for those of you who are not familiar with Matthew. <laughs> it's the last chapter. We're going to read the last four verses. Um, but before we get started and as you're turning there, let's say the Lord's Prayer together to start our sermon off right. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So as you flip your Bibles to Matthew 28, I want to issue a little bit of a warning. Um, there's a good chance that what I'm going to say to you today will probably offend or upset a few of you here. Um, and I say that because my own toes were stepped on when I was prepping for this. And uh, sometimes we can be so, we can feel like we know something so well that we miss the truth that lies in front of us, right? And so in this particular passage, it's one that we've all definitely heard before. Um, it is called the Great Commission. And in this passage, Jesus tells us to go out and to make disciples. And this is one of those things that we can easily, and I mean easily, uh, just let kind of sit aside and forget the implications of what Jesus is saying. So today, I'm issuing you a warning because this will probably upset some of you, especially some of you who have been in church for a long time. Um, and as our passage from Corinthians read earlier, we are to test ourselves, we are to look at ourselves, look internally and ask ourselves the question, are we really disciples? And so today, uh, I'm going to start by reading these verses to you. So it's verse 16, Matthew 28. I'm reading from the ESV Bible. If you do not have a Bible with you, there are some in the pews in front of you. Um, grab it. Feel free to underline anything, highlight anything, whatever. Take it home with you if you don't have a Bible. It's fine. I don't want anybody leaving here without the words of God in their hands. Matthew 28, verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father God, I come to you this morning, and I ask that as I stand here behind this podium with this Bible in my hand, and these things that I have to say that I will, in the words of Ezekiel, eat your scroll and only say what you need me to say, Lord. I pray that every heart in here will be challenged and will leave, them, leave this church asking the question whether or not they are disciples. And if they are, are they willing to continue the journey? This is a hard question to ask, Lord, but I know that through your Holy Spirit, you will show us all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to start off with a story this morning. When I was a teenager, I had a uh, surgery done. Um, I went to 
uh, the Medical University of South Carolina in USC in Charleston, I had an issue with my chest in which it concaved a little bit too much, right? And um, this isn't always problematic, but it could be. It can cause you to have breathing issues and potentially heart issues in the long run. And in order to get it fixed, I had to go to a very specific place, right? You had to find a specialist to do it because not anyone can do this, only a specialist. There's only a few in the nation. So I had to go to this particular hospital. And in this particular hospital, Dr. Adams was the one who did surgery on me, a very amazing gentleman who treated me with care and respect. Uh, he also alerted me to the fact that I might die from it. And in fact, literally the same day, someone who had the same surgery right after me died in the room next to me. And I remember when I came to after the surgery, being greeted by the doctor, and he came to console our family, let us know about you know what went on, what happened. And I also remember that he had a group of individuals walking around with him. He was not alone. He had four or five other new up-and-coming doctors who were trained to be specialists as well. And what's interesting about that in my mind was, at the time, I was like, what are these guys doing here? Can I just, like, listen, give me some medicine, let me go back to sleep. But as an adult, I look at that and I think, hmm, okay. These people were studying, and they knew that their best form of study was not in books, but rather on the journey with the actual doctor themselves. See, when you have a medical issue that requires direct attention, you can't go to a generalist doctor. You have to go to a specialist, someone who specializes in that field, right? And so when you go to a specialist, it's one person who focuses their entire life on one thing. And these other people under him were trained to do the same thing. They were following, making notes, watching as he was in the surgery, putting their hands and getting dirty with them. They were disciples. You see, they were disciples of the medical field. And I hope and I pray that those people have moved on and are doing the same care because there's more people who need that in this world. And so when I was thinking about it, man, like these people devoted themselves to education, to learning, to understanding. They devoted themselves to teaching, to being in the field, to living the life. And it sounds a lot like the 12 apostles, doesn't it? Picture this, you're out fishing. Just minding your own business. And some dude comes up to you out of nowhere and says, hey, uh, lay those nets down and follow me, right? Give up everything you have, your father, your brothers, your sisters, your family at home, just follow me, it's fine. And you'll be fishers of men. Now, how many of you rationally would leave anything behind? The reason why I ask these questions is because that is what Jesus is calling us to Yes. He does not want a group of nominal individuals. Nominal is the new word that evangelicals have coined for Christians who sit their butts in pews and seats and do nothing. They are nominal because they are Christian in name only. They profess the name of God but know nothing about him and don't share it. How many of us in here are that? It's fitting that this is the passage for today because this is the passage that I've been living with the entire time for the whole COVID thing, right? We, uh, as a church, decided that it was best for us to distance ourselves from everyone for a little while. And it actually was good. It was good for me because it gave me a chance to really hunker down in the scriptures, right? I clung to God and I clung to God's word and I clung to this passage here because in it, 
we see the fullness of the Trinity commissioning us as individuals to do the thing that we are supposed to be doing, but we as a church are not doing. And it's so baffling. And I was thinking about it the other day. Our culture has essentially labeled churches non-essential. You can say whatever you want. You can say that this government or this political party doesn't see it this way or this one does. It's irrelevant. We have been labeled as non-essential to people. And because we've been labeled as non-essential, that means that if we are nominal in name only, then we do no good for anyone. We serve no purpose. And that should infuriate you. That should rile you up to not be passive anymore. So what the world needs to see and what the culture needs to see is a group of people who are not nominal, who are not non-essential, but are essential because they hold the one thing that no one else can have, and that is peace. Think about it. We think everything in our world is now, and it's never happened before. We have violence rampant in the streets, right? We have people being unjustly murdered. We have racial divisions like never before. But in reality, if you read the Bible, it's been in there the whole time and it never existed. All of these things happen day in and day out. And we as Christians were never meant to put our foot in those waters, but rather to give the solution to them. We're not supposed to judge America. Rather, we're supposed to say, we don't belong to this kingdom. We belong to a future kingdom. We believe to one that is actually, as we were about to read in a second, already existing. And so I want you to pay attention to a few words in this passage. Uh, the word all is one of them, right? And we'll get to it in a second, but I'm going to start and go verse by verse in this one. So the first line says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. So the first thing we see here is that Christ calls us out. This is essential. You have to get this. This is this without this, nothing else makes sense, right? We live in a world where seeker-friendly churches are the thing where we seek Jesus out and we decide that we want to be with Jesus or we don't want to be with Jesus. But it says right here that Jesus directed them. So Jesus called them out. He called to them and told them to meet him at the mountain. They weren't just wandering around in the mountain and all of a sudden, no, oh, Jesus appeared. No, Jesus was like, I'm going to be here at this day and this time. Be there. So he calls to us and he directs us. In verse 17, it says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So there are two responses to Jesus' call. Worship or doubt. There's nothing in between. You either worship God with your heart and your soul and your mind, or you doubt God. That's it. Worship has somehow become a, a, another thing in our culture where we think of, you know, just really great music and raising my hands up and singing songs, and that's all we think about when we think about the word worship, but here it actually means adoration. One, one of the strange Greek translations is like as if a dog is licking your hand. That is what it means. Worship is when a dog is licking your hand and they love you because they just want to be in your, in your midst. And so the ones who worshipped were the ones who were giving everything. They were laying down their lives prostrate before him and saying, I surrender all. But some doubted. This is the most 
amazing and sort of baffling three words here. These are the 11 disciples we're talking about. Now, some scholars would go up to verse 10 and say, oh, well, they told his brothers to come as well, so maybe it wasn't the 11. But as we know from the other gospels, some doubted. Thomas doubted. Peter even doubted. And so here they are in the midst of God, and they can either worship or doubt. So the question is, are you a worshiper or are you a doubter? See, there's a black and white here. Either God is all and everything or God is nothing. In verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I can live in this passage for forever. Jesus is saying, look guys, all authority, literally everything on heaven and earth has been handed over to me. Now, if you read your Bible, you will know that before the devil enters into Judas, it has to be granted permission right, by Jesus. Before the devil can wreak havoc on Job, he has to be granted position, permission from God. And so he is saying all authority over plagues, over violence, over sickness, over death, heaven and earth is under my rule and my command. I am king. I am king Jesus. And when the king gives you a command, you follow it or you die. So the first all you have to do there is circle that all authority. That means literally everything has been given to him. The word authority is a Greek word. It says exousia. It means power over persons, things, dominion, or rule. Christ has taken rule over everything. And so all evil in this world is allowed. By God. Doesn't, he doesn't do it himself, however. He allows it to happen for a reason, for reasons that we ourselves do not know. And I suspect we won't know until the end. But all authority has been given to Jesus, so nothing can happen without his permission. And that's key, because you won't get the rest of this if you don't get that part right there. So first and foremost, all authority is given to Christ. And then what he does is he gives the disciples a command. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He tells us to go. Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And this goes back to what I was saying about the doctor and his pupils, right? The word disciple actually means a pupil. It means to enroll as a lifelong scholar. And if you know anything about a scholar or a pupil, that means someone who has dedicated themselves to something. And they will live their entire life dedicated to that purpose, to knowing as much as they can about it. So a disciple is not someone who merely sits in a seat and comes on Sunday and says, hallelujah, and then leaves. A disciple is someone who takes it every single day, yes. day by day, studying and pouring over the word of God, loving on him and just trying to lick at his hand for a little piece of knowledge that he wants to give us. 
And the thing is, we can't, we functionally cannot make those type of people if we ourselves are not them. If we have doubt in our heart, it is impossible for us to make disciples. And so let's look at our churches for a moment. Our churches are filled with people who've been in church for most of their life. Where are the new people? Where are the people who need to hear the word of God? We just keep appealing to everyone's interest. As it says in, in Timothy, we keep tickling after everyone's sort of personal interest of what they want to hear. But we're not speaking the truth. We're not speaking the discipleship of the word. And that's because the pews are not speaking. It's just the pastors who are speaking. And so ask yourself this question. If I come here and I get something on Sunday, right? And I never implement any of it in my life. I never read these scriptures anymore. I never go out. I never do any of those things afterward. Am I a disciple of Christ or am I a disciple of a church? Am I a disciple of a building? If you put that sticker on your car of your favorite church, are you a disciple of Jesus or are you a disciple of the church building that you attend? That's misguiding people, and I will no longer do it. I will not do it. I will not aid in the bed, any of that. I will stand here until I am blue if I am given the opportunity and preach Christ and Christ crucified, as Paul said, over and over and over again. And I will take it out. I will not sit here any longer. And believe me, guys, it's not just the streets. It's your workplaces. Yes. It's your schools. It's everywhere you are, anywhere. Don't assume that you think someone that you know is saved just because they say they know who Jesus is. It's not the truth. That's not the truth. I would be a liar if I said that everyone in this room was truly saved. I can tell you from my own personal experience that I played guitar and I sang songs to you for years without really truly feeling the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. It's not only until now that I've grasped the concept that I've literally clung to this word as if it is the breath that I breathe that I can tell you now that I believe in God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind. And if you can't say that, if he is not first in your life, then you are not a disciple. I'm telling you this out of love because I want everyone in this room to be one. There's nothing that I want to see more than every individual with me on the day of Christ's return singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I don't want any one of you to suffer eternal hellfire. And that's why I'm saying this. And so he tells us to go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is why we're talking about this passage, because this is Trinity Sunday. Notice how it says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. It is one entity. One. You are baptizing people in the name of the Father, who has shown mercy by giving you his Son, who has shown you grace by saving you from your sins, and who is giving you the Holy Spirit to do the work of the ministry and repeat it over and over and over again. The Trinity is confounding. We'll never totally understand it, but that is the core principle that we have to get. That is what we are teaching people. And so we must all be disciples too. We must cling to the word. We must not just come on Sundays, but we must let it drive every portion of our life. Every single portion. There's no partiality here. This is, this is where we're going. 
And so he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the question is, what did Jesus command us? What did he command? What did he say to us? This you must do. Anyone know? All right. I can work with that. Turn with me to Matthew 22. So a few pages back. And in Matthew 22, we're going to start in verse 34. We're going to see that the Pharisees, the, these sort of head religious people, right? The religious people, the one, the pew sitters, we'll give them that name right now, who uh, were trying to trick Jesus. As always, they're trying to catch him in his words so they can find finally a justifiable reason to execute this man. He says in verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, so Jesus already shut down one other faction of people with their stupid questions. They gathered together. They've come together. They're like, okay, we gotta, like, we got to ask this guy a good one. We need a good one. How are we really going to stomp, stomp Jesus here? And one of them, a lawyer, always a lawyer, right? He asserts through the entirety of the book. And he's like, oh, Deuteronomy, this, this, I got it, this one. He says he asked them a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Catch that. Which is the great? Now, if you remember correctly, there were ten commandments given, right? There were ten. There was not one. There was, there was ten. And they're asking him to say, hey, which one, which one of those ten was the great one? This is the trap. Mm -hmm. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Silence. <laughs> Jesus literally just summed up all of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, all of it. He summed up the Torah in, in two lines. But what he has said is profound because no human being can do it. No one can do it. He says, love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That is true worship. That is adoration. That is sitting at the feet of God and licking, asking for the word. That is what he's doing. He's asking, give me everything you can. That is adoration. And then he says that another commandment is equal to this. Not the other way. Equal. He says, this is the great first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And I would say this is the one most everyone has trouble with. Loving another person as if it was yourself. That's imp almost impossible unless you love God first. If you love God, if you truly love him, if you truly cling to his word that is breathed out, then you'll know what is right and what is wrong. You'll know when your heart is telling you, you can't do this, right? You, you need to change. And so that leads me back to my other point in Matthew 28. The next all, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all nations. He says, hey dudes, don't discriminate against anyone. 
Your biases, your racial and religious preferences are irrelevant in my kingdom, friends. All nations, every nation, every nationality, every ethnicity, every sexuality, whatever identity people hold, there is a new and better identity in the kingdom of God, and it is your job to carry it out to all nations. We are actually, I'm going to say this, this is the one, one of the things that I really love about this church, is from the beginning, we've always had sort of a, a mix of people, right? We're not all one ethnicity. We have different ages, we have different ethnicities, we have different backgrounds, and, and that's sort of the beauty of the church, right? But when we leave the church, the people we gather ourselves around, what do they look like? Do they look a lot like us? Do they think a lot like us? Because if so, are we really taking the word out to all? Are we really showing all, love to all, if we just choose who we want to be around? We're not to make distinctions. In fact, in James, he tells us that we are not to make distinctions between rich and poor or people who are oppressed or not oppressed, right? And so our job is to love people. If we love God, we follow his commands. If we follow his commands, that means that we disciple people. If we disciple people, that means that we show them love because we're saving them from hell. We're saving them from eternity and doom. And that is the greatest form of love. And the best thing about that, or the strangest thing about it is, to Christians, it is, it is such a beautiful thing because we know that we have saved someone or helped save them from their sins. And to the outside world, that doesn't sound great because no one wants to be called out for their sins. But the reality is, is that is love. That is showing love. Sacrificial love. I'm coming to you knowing that this will be harsh because I love you. Now, we're not to judge the world. Rather, we are to point to the kingdom. We are to acknowledge that the world is broken and full of sin and then go, but there is a king. And that king is Christ Jesus, who came into this world, who took on this flesh and died willingly for you, to atone for you, so that one day when he returns, you won't be locked down to this mortal and deteriorating world. It's so easy for us to get caught up in our culture, but we were called to something other. He is already king, and when he comes, it will be something new. And so we are to go to all nations, teaching and baptizing. And then it says in verse 20, we are to teach them to observe the next all, all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this is the key. How can you teach anyone to command all that Jesus has said if you do not know all that Jesus has said? I looked at a Barna research study and I was, man, it's terrible. It was a, it was a thing of evangelicals, Christians who have Bibles, right? And of the ones who have it, only 9% have read the Bible. Only 9% of evangelical Christians have read the entire Bible. Just so you know, I'm going to give you a little bit of history because I love history. William Tyndale is the man who first set out to write the Bible in English around the time of the Reformation. Um, in fact, actually, the King James Bible is based off of his original translation of the New Testament and the Psalms. 
William Tyndale was hated by, by the Roman Catholic Church, by King Henry VIII, by pretty much everyone because he was doing something that they didn't like. He was taking the vernacular of Latin, which was hard for people to understand, and translating it into English so that even in his own words, the plowboy would know more than the priest. That was his whole intention. William Tyndale was burned at a stake because he translated the Bible to English. We live in a world where we have multiple translations where we can literally go into Hobby Lobby and pick any version we want. It can be pink, it can be blue, it can be purple. It doesn't matter. It can be the coolest looking Bible or not. And we won't even read the thing, but some dude got burned at a stake because he wanted us to read it and we don't do it. How can you make disciples if you don't know what the word of the Lord says? I'm sorry, it's impossible. And so yeah, if you have a Bible at home and you're not reading it, you don't even know that what I'm saying is truth. I could be telling you anything and you could just believe it and eat it up and the disciple of the church goes out and says, hey, listen to what I heard on Sunday. But guess what? You don't know. I'm not saying that it isn't truth, by the way. Just want to make that very clear. I come at you with a heavy conviction. I, that is, that is I, I do not want to say anything that is not actually here. But that is the truth. We've been given such a beautiful, beautiful wealth of history and translation. And it is our duty as Christians and as disciples, professing disciples, to pick that up, to read it and to know the word and to let it dwell in us richly. Because when it does, I don't know if you've noticed anything. I'll talk about myself. I don't even notice anything about me. I can't stop talking about the thing, right? And so anyone who's around me, it doesn't matter. I was around my brother and he's one of those people who's kind of on the fringe a little bit, right? And he's talking about the culture of the world and like literally in the conversation, I'm just saying the words of James to him over and over and over again. He doesn't even know that I'm saying that, but that's just, that's just the vernacular that I speak in now. And that's how all Christians were called. Someone brought to attention the fact that the New Testament writers, especially Paul, was so fluent in the Old Testament that he just quoted it offhand without even thinking about it. If you, if you have a cross-reference Bible... And, and you get to any of the letters of Paul, you'll just see it like glows with other colors of all the places that it reached, references something else. He just knew it so much that it just came out as he was writing. He connected the dots between the old and the new and saw Christ in everything. And that's how we are to do it. We're supposed to be like those people on the walk to Emmaus at the end say, did our hearts not burn when he was speaking the word of God to us? That is who we are to be. And I will pound it on the head until every person in this church is a disciple of Christ. Because we are called to something so much more. We are called to greater things. We are called to a kingdom that is so much greater than this one here. Yes. Our rulers fail us time and time again. Yes. Our people fail us time and time again. And we have to stop putting our faith in the world and putting our faith in King Jesus that says all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And so the question is, isn't it hard? Isn't it hard to share the word? Isn't it hard to study the word? Yes, it is. But, and this is the but, Jesus is always with us. He says that he's always with us, guiding us and leading us. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. Turn with me to John chapter 14. So if you're in your New Testament, you go over Couple, couple, so Luke, Mark, Mark, Luke, John, there you go, 14, a few pages over. And I would encourage anyone who wants to, um, who's like, 
I don't know where I start with this thing. Just read this and read this over and over again. Just read John 14 over and over again until finally it's like, whoa, it makes sense. Um, I encourage you to do that. So in verse 15 of John 14, Jesus tells us something about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is this thing that we've kind of made into this weird sort of guy who comes down and he gives us all sorts of uh, uh, strange tongues of interpretation. And then sometimes like these gifts that flow and the music gets really crazy. And we kind of made it into this overcomplicated thing. When in reality, it serves one purpose. And Jesus says what it is here. In verse 15, it says, if you love me, catch this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Look at that. The world cannot receive truth. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, cool. What does that mean? <laughs> All right. Who is this helper that he's going to give us? So skip over to 23. We'll, 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 we'll undermine Judas's silly question. Skip over to verse 23. And it says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Okay, still leading this up. What, what are you doing, Jesus? What are you saying? And then in verse 26, he says this, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said yes. to you. So that's what the Holy Spirit does. When you've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and you have been get laid on hands from, from the elders of the church, yeah. and you have received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance all those things that Jesus said, and even makes sense of all those things that he said that don't make sense, right? The world cannot receive truth. But you can because you have the Holy Spirit. And so at first, it's intimidating. It's, it's hard to pick this up and read it. There's a lot of pages, a lot of words. What's going on? You pick it up. You ask the Holy Spirit to show you and to guide you and to lead you so that you know his words. A stranger you will not follow. And so yes, the way is hard. But he is with us always, and he has given us the Holy Spirit to do it. And so, one more scripture. This is uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And this is my case for what I think the church should be functioning like. So Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read verse 11 through 16. Colossians, Thessalonians, come on, Ephesians. Okay, verse 11 of chapter 4. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, right? So the purpose of coming to church is so that these people can build up the body of Christ. But then there's more. It says, until we all attain, all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or to mature man and womanhood, right? 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I watched a documentary last night about ants. This is gonna sound weird at first, um, but I'm getting there. I was given a kiddie, a kiddie pool, and so I blew up the kiddie pool and I let my kids play in it. Um, and I was sitting there, I was laying in the pool, I was watching these little ants just kind of like go across my yard and they were dragging other ants. And I was like, what are they doing? This is absurd, right? I don't understand. And so compelled as I was, I was like, I have to know more about these ants, right? So I watched a nature documentary last night about some ants. And these ants, especially uh, the, the soldier ants, right? They can carry up to 50 times their weight. That's baffling, right? And they will literally, they come together as one. And, and the documentary said something really interesting. It said, alone they are stupid, essentially. Like, it was basically saying, alone, they don't have much brain capacity. Uh, but however, when they get together in the nest and they come together, they become sort of like a superpower, all thinking with the same mind, right? They're all thinking with one purpose and one mind. And so there are some ants that have the ability to just be uh, do certain things, right? Like to kind of prepare the way. There are some ants who will move things out of the way. Then there's the queen who lays the eggs and they all have a different purpose, but when they come together, they are one unified mind, right? And this is what it's saying here. When we come together, when we all attain to the same level of knowledge, when we are all on the same doctrinal position, when we all have come to know God and Christ as our Lord and Savior and put him first, we are his body and he is our head. He is our brain, right? And we, when the church is functioning properly, that brain is then giving life to the rest of us. And so all of us come together surrounded by God's word. He's giving life to us. And so in this, think about that. Jesus is putting together this body of saints for fellowship, for love, for community. And alone, we cannot stand. But together, as one, we can do great things. And so the church of today needs to grasp that concept. If we want to be disciples, we have to start acting like Christ's body. And do you think Christ, being the head and the brain, would be happy with a dirty, stained body? Absolutely not. He's coming back for a spotless bride. And so this body needs to repent. This body needs to prepare itself for God so that we can do the work of the ministry. We need to put aside our false idols and allow God to put first. It says in verse 25 of Ephesians 4, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We are members one of another, so speak truth. And so my question to you today, as we make our way back to Matthew 28, is 
Are you willing to be a disciple of Christ? Or would you rather be a butt in a pew? I'm not going to judge anyone for their take on that. Right? I'm not. If you choose to be that way, that is fine. But know that Christ has called you to something greater. Christ has placed you somewhere for a reason. Christ has put you, whether in ministry or in your work, for a reason, to be a light to those people, to love your neighbor as yourself, to function as his body in the world. And so it has occurred to me that the only possible way for the church to grow as disciples is to stop meeting on Sunday only. It just can't, it's not functional. It doesn't work. You can't come here every week and hear a few scriptures and someone talk to you for 45 minutes and think that that is enough of God's word. And so under heavy conviction, I know that, that that's not sustainable. I know that something has to change. So I'm telling you right now, my door is open every day of the week, literally every day. If you need to talk to me, I'll give you my address. Come. But know that if you come to my house and you have dinner at my house, the intention will not be to chit-chat about the world and the things in it. It will be to talk about Scripture. It will be to grow you as a disciple of Christ so that we do not lack in anything, so that together we are a proper body for Christ. We are a small church, and that is a beautiful thing because I can look out and I can see every one of you, and I know all of you. And because of that, it helps me know where you're at. But I don't know where you're at if you're not honest. If you want to be a disciple, let's do it together. Let's walk together. Let's take that road to Emmaus together. And let's no longer be tossed to and fro by strange doctrine and by cultural shifts in our world. Let's rather focus on God and let's put him first. Seek first the kingdom, right? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so I am calling and I'm asking all of you earnestly to be a disciple of Christ. Be a disciple. You've been given so much. You've been given so many things that we take for granted. You have been given the word of God in your own language. Some people don't believe in the gift of tongues. I'm telling you, scholars have done amazing things. They have translated archaic languages into our vernacular so that we can read the Bible as we understand it now and we take it for granted. That is absurd. And as a Christian, I can tell you that I did it myself, but I don't do it anymore. And so I'm calling you to a higher calling. I'm asking you to be disciples, to come along with me. Talk to me after this. If you're feeling like maybe, oh my gosh, like... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I just stepped into. I don't know what's going on. I don't, I don't even know what to do. First and foremost, before you think of anything, before you try to go out and before you try to disciple the world, you yourself need to be a disciple. And that starts with point number one. All authority has been given to Jesus. Submit. Worship. And when you worship and you draw near, he will draw near to you. It's that simple. And the more you draw, the more he gives the more he shows, the more he reveals, and the easier it becomes to be a disciple of Christ. 
And so today, if we love him, we will do as he said. We will keep his commands. We will trust in him, and he will lead us to eternal life, and he will lead those around us to eternal life. Submit yourself to King Jesus. That is the point of today. Submit yourself, grow, and teach. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you sent your only begotten son to this world to die on a cross for us. You gave us the Holy Spirit to grow us, to teach us more about you so that we would be excited, that we would not just passively go on our lives, but rather would dwell in your presence, Lord. We have immense gratitude, worship, and adoration for you, Lord. We give you thanks for the blessings that you've given us, and we ask that we do not take them for granted. Spark a fire in our hearts. As we learned last week, on the day of Pentecost, when you rained little fires on every little mountain, put a fire in everyone's heart here. Spark one, a spark there, a spark there and let it grow into a burning bonfire that is contagious. We give you thanks with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. In your name we pray, amen.